Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Ralph Snodgrass, founder and president of Vistagen Therapeutics. Dr. Snodgrass, how are you doing? Doing very well, Richard. Thanks very much. I appreciate talking to you today. Yeah. So if you would uh, let listeners know uh, what the main project or projects at Vistagen, what are you guys working on? Sure. Well, Vistagen is a NASDAQ-listed biopharmaceutical company. It's developing um, small molecule drugs for major CNS uh, conditions. We're in phase two clinical studies for a lead drug candidate in major depression uh, and has also uh, applications in other CNS indications such as uh, neuropathic pain, epilepsy, um, and neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and um, Huntington's disease. Um, I think what I want to talk to you about today is about some of our stem cell technologies. Um, okay. This, the stem, is a wholly owned subsidiary of Vistagen, and in Vista Stem, we have put all of the stem cell technologies that we've developed and licensed throughout the course of Vistagen uh, to uh, develop using the stem cell prepotent stem cell technologies to develop drugs for a variety of indications. And so I'm excited to talk to you about some of our stem cell programs. All right, well, let's talk about stem cells. You said they're pluripotent stem cell technologies. So as I understand it, that means these are not embryonic stem cells. These are stem cells taken from donors or maybe the patient themselves, and the cell is turned back in time essentially to a stem cell-ish type of cell a pluripotent stem cell, is that right? Yeah, I mean, you can, pluripotent stem cells includes both those cells, which are called induced pluripotent cells or iPS cells, that's what you just described. But it also, in the older days, was the embryonic stem cell too that was a pluripotent cell. But yeah, you're essentially right. You take an adult cell, you can do some genetic tricks to it to actually take it back in time to create a stem cell that has the ability to produce all the cells of the human body, whether you talk about blood, brain, uh, muscle, and so on, liver, heart. And I know that um, where you're getting the adult cells from is important. Bone marrow is pretty invasive. Fat may be pretty invasive. Where are you guys getting them? From blood, from skin? From, you know, What's the preferred way? The preferred way is um, small skin biopsy uh, for us. So that's the preferred way for the induced pluripotent cells. I think it's important to okay. talk about some of the, the ways that we use stem cells, though, in our drug uh, discovery and drug development uh, activities. I think that's relatively unique, and I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about some of those applications. Yeah, definitely. I just want to lay the, the groundwork. Where are they coming from? But yeah, now let's talk sure. about the applications. So what, what are okay. the top applications that are most exciting to you? 
Yeah, well, let me take a step back if you indulge me a little bit, because one of the things we're really proud of at Vistagen is our role in uh, developing um, uh, at least the birth of stem cells for drug discovery, drug development, and um, those types of things. We've been, Vistagen was founded in 1998, so we've been around now for almost 20 years. Uh, and the focus uh, from day one is, at least for the stem cell side of the Bev business, has been to use these the tremendous uh, biological value and power of stem cells to understand both tissue development and tissue responses to drugs. And so the ability to take a pluripotent stem cell and develop that into a heart cell allows us to focus on the biology of heart development and the responses of heart cells to drugs. That's important because um, you know, the leading cause of drug failures uh, in terms of toxicity for drug development is cardiac or heart to uh, toxicity. So if you have a more powerful system to look at cardiac effects, human cardiac cells, human heart cells, and the effects that drugs have have on those, such that you can predict the toxicity of those drugs, and you have a better way of predicting early on, long before you ever have to put a drug into patients, whether or not that drug will be safe for the heart. And we use that, we call it the um, CardioSafe 3D, and we have some, some customized cardiac assays that we use to uh, develop small molecule drugs in a variety of therapeutic areas that have a probability of being much safer in terms of heart biology in the clinic. We call that a drug rescue approach. At what point do uh, are drugs found to cause heart issues? Is it after the drugs are in use and they've gone through clinical trials? And well, you know that's that's a great question. I mean, many times or often, a drug is a very interesting drug that has um, very strong efficacy in animal models or so on. Uh, is terminated in development because it looks like in animals that it has cardiac toxicity. It turns out that many times the animals lead to false positives. And so a drug is erroneously canceled because it may have heart to toxicities. There's a variety of cases of this where the animal models do not give appropriate responses. So that's one way that uh, drugs fail. The other way, as you said, is once they get into the clinic, they pass through all the animal studies, the animals say it looks like it's safe, you put it in humans, and in fact, you find out now this drug in humans is not safe for the heart. So there's two ways that you can have a drug fail due to cardiac toxicity. We know that our cardiac 3D system predicts both the what's called the false positives and the false negatives. Um, and so it's a much better system to early on start to predict cardiac liabilities. And so we use that uh, to help us prioritize between potential drug leads. And so uh, we work only on the ones that in our cardiac assays say that these should be safe compounds, and those then we further develop. So how does the um, the system actually work? What is it? Is it just a software model? Is it a, 
a physical model that accompanies an animal or a human? I mean, what is it? Yeah, that's a great question, too. Um, it is cells, three-dimensional tissues that are developed from stem cells into cardiac cells. Uh, we use those cells to test drugs, and both in terms of just pure toxicity, but also more importantly on the electrophysiology, if you will, the arrhythmia that's caused by the drugs on heart cells. Um, and we use those to predict the um, uh, the activity of the drugs. Now, this is in a very important area now and is uh, very timely because the FDA has initiated a consortium of both pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies to try to validate the use of stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes for um, heart safety studies. That consortium is called CIPA, C-I-P-A, which stands for Comprehensive In Vitro Proarrhythmic Assay. That's quite a mouthful. But again, it's designed to see whether or not the use of stem cells and cardiac-derived um, uh, cells can actually help uh, offset the need for very expensive late-stage clinical cardiac safety studies. And so we're intimately involved with that program. It's ongoing now. We provided data from our stem cell systems to that consortium. And the group, the consortium, then is trying to assess the the uh, validation of these assays for understanding <clears throat> cardiac safety. So where do you get the um, the cells to do your studies? Do you just ask various healthy donors and you create a series of, I guess, pseudo hearts um, in the yeah, lab we don't, and then we test don't, drugs in them? Yeah, that's uh, we don't have to continue to go back to donors. I mean, once you have um, pluripotent stem cell, it's even though it's a normal cell, it's essentially immortal in a culture dish. And so you can continue to grow that and expand that and use that. You can um, set up QC quality controlled banks of cells in their freezer of both the stem cells themselves as well as the cardiac cells that are derived from that and pull those out then to do your assays. So we don't necessarily need to go back to donors. Where donors can be involved um, is the use of creating uh, diseases, disease models in a dish. And so you can actually go to a patient that has a genetic heart abnormality and uh, develop a pluripotent stem cell line from that patient sample and develop cardiac cells that have that genetic abnormality to both study it in terms of its effect on heart, but more importantly, to study what drugs might be more effective at treating that uh, genetic disease. So it's getting to be a very, very powerful system for both disease models and a dish, understanding drug responses. And more recently, uh, there's tremendous excitement now in using those cells for cell therapy, to actually use the cells themselves as a drug. And one of the exciting things that we've been involved with that we announced is we recently licensed um, some of our cardiac uh, technologies and expertise to uh, Blue Rock Therapeutics. They are a startup venture between Versant 
uh, Ventures and Bayer, the German uh, Bayer pharmaceutical comp company. And their okay. goal is to develop cardiac cells to actually treat patients with cardiac disease. So using the cells as a drug itself. So we're quite excited about that. And I think that one thing, too, besides the the power that that type of group is bringing to cell therapy, at least cardiac cell therapy, uh, it also highlights the value that the world sees, at least as indicated by those two large firms, of our tech technology and our expertise. And so I think that's also important to us. We anticipate using that same type of model. We have technology and expertise, and not just heart, but also in blood, liver, uh, bone, cartilage, and a variety of other cell types, uh, all derived from stem cells, pluripotent stem, uh, stem cells. And not only do we plan to use those in some of our drug development efforts ourselves, but also strategically license opportunities to groups that that have the capability of actually developing cell therapy applications for those all cell types. So we're really excited about this field. I mean, it's um, it's fascinating yeah, that you know if you look back at when um, I started this Vistagen, uh, 1998, uh, the stem cell field was just on the academic side uh, was had been underway for about 10 years, but there hadn't been any type of commercial development of that. And now we're at a point where we can develop every single cell type in the human body. Uh, there are really? clinical every studies single one? now. Well, every single one that's really been actively tried. So you pick a really? cell type and, um, sure, brain, liver, bone, um, pancreas, blood, all the cells of the blood. So it really is a powerful uh, system. And if you compare that back to when uh, I actually got involved with stem cells uh, for the first time, was in late 80s. And at that point, the only type of in vitro system you had to study drug responses or study, study diseases were cancer cells, cells that were transformed in cancerous. And so it was always worried that you're getting a very uh, biased view about biology and drug responses by studying cancer cells. And now we can right. do those types of studies on normal cells that one can produce from, from the body. Yeah, a couple of questions about your model system. So you can create almost any type of cell. You can create a model of it. You can test drugs on it. You can develop, it sounds like, individual therapies for individual people. So at, at what point will there be a closed loop process? You know, I have a disease. I go in, uh, they culture my cells, they create a therapy specific to me, they give me that therapy, and, you know, I'm healed. I mean, for <laughs> any given process, are you guys close on on that closed loop, you know, heal thyself process yet, or is it still many years away? Well, I think that's still a few years away, but mainly because of the uh, how does one uh, pay for that? What commercial models would pay for that individual type of therapy? I mean, that's a significant challenge from a commercialization point point of view. Um, there certainly are pro approaches to use that to study 
drug responses if you have a particular cardiac disease or approaches to saying, okay, which are the drugs out there that may be more suitable for treating you and so on. That's not in the too distant future. Uh, but again, that's a little bit outside of our core mission. Our core mission is to use the, those cells to actually identify new novel and safer drugs. And maybe we should make a couple points about how we do that, because I think that also is unique and not completely transparent in what we just Yeah, discussed. let's get into that. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, we call it drug rescue. And the idea that I've already men mentioned is a large, large percentage of drugs that fail because of toxicity, fail because of cardiac effects. And you can have a very good drug from an efficacy point of view that terminates in development because it, it ultimately turns out to have a heart liability. So we take selected ones of those that meet our criteria that have good efficacy, good market opportunities, and we take those and using medicinal chemistry, we make variants of those drugs, and we use then our CardioSafe 3D and our customized cardiac assays to screen those variants and prioritize amongst those variants which are the safe ones and which are not safe. And we select those that have a much higher degree of safety, still retain the good efficacy that was used originally to identify the compound. And we develop that new drug. That new drug is a, truly a new drug. It has new IP, um, and we have, fortune, we have cut through all the early screening that has to be, be done to look for an effective drug. So we leverage a tremendous amount of research that's already been done by the original inventor, if you will, of the original compound. And we short circuit all of that and identify variants that have reduced the liability. And so that gives us a much more efficient business model to develop uh, new small molecule drugs. Are you allowed to take existing drugs in the market and work on them to create new variants that would be considered either a new drug or a better version of an existing one? Yeah, that's a great question, too. Um, all the information that we use to start any one of our drug rescue programs is in the public domain. And so clearly you, you can take public um, structures, modify those, and screen, it. does the new compound now have better safety characteristics? So yes, the answer is absolutely. Which which does the company prefer to do? Does it prefer to work on new drugs or does it prefer to take existing public domain ones and tweak them to um, reduce side effects and make them better? How do you decide what to work on? Well, I mean, the, the point is that if you take a public domain com compound and you modify it, that modification results in a new drug. And so that's what we do. We take a drug that is known to have good efficacy but has not been developed because of cardiac uh, toxicity. We modify that, select variants that are novel and new, those variants that still retain the efficacy. We screen in our cardiac assays to find the ones that are safer, and then we develop those. So we wind up... Even though we start with a public domain compound, we wind up with a new 
intellectual property, a new chemical entity that we can develop and own all the rights to. I see why. Now I understand why you call it drug rescue because yeah, you'd you'd pick the drugs where you know the the result would be damn it. You know it it looks like it would really help, but it's it's destroying the heart. You know how do we make it work? Yeah, how okay, do we that rescue sense. that commercial development of that, that drug, and how do we leverage the tremendous investment that's been already put into screening drug libraries to find a drug that's uh, effective on that particular target so we don't have to deal with all of that type of uh, investment so it's a much more efficient way to develop drugs we believe yeah that's really smart i mean how much how big is the graveyard of of drugs that got to a certain point but failed because of you know cardiac problems i mean is it vast there is there a lot to pick from yeah there there are i mean the not all drugs are suitable for this. They have to have certain characteristics. I, I can't go into some of the characteristics because it's proprietary, but they do have to have certain characteristics. So we go through a significant screening procedure to make sure first, first of all, they have to be small molecule drugs. Um, they have to be amenable to medicinal chemistry approaches. And we go through a careful intellectual property assessment to make sure that in the end we can get to a new chemical entity with new IP. But uh, yes, there are many drugs that fail because of cardiac toxicity, both in preclinical development, meaning in animals and so on, as well as in early stage clinical trials. Do you get any benefit um, from picking a drug that has gotten to gotten through Early, early stage clinical trials, you know, I mean, essentially drugs that have failed at the very last second versus ones that failed earlier on? Uh, well, the only benefit you you get, I mean, I, I certainly prefer drugs that have failed earlier because you can show a proof of principle that you're moving the needle much more rapidly as opposed to a drug that, say, fails in phase three clinical studies to really prove that you've improved increase the uh, safety of that, you, you would have to take your new drug through phase three. Whereas if you have a drug that fails in phase one, all you have to do is a small phase one study to show that your drug now is safer than the original drug that you used to modify. So one of our preferences is drugs that have failed earlier because you can get to a proof of principle experiment much more rapidly sense makes sense i wouldn't have known that but yeah that's why i asked yeah um quick quick question about the um the models themselves you said that um the induced pluripotent stem cells are essentially immortal they can be cultured and you know ad infinitum have researchers seen that um certain people's uh, stem cells will act differently from others do you need new ones and new donors and how many different lines of cells do you need to make robust models? Can you just do one, sure. or do you need multiple? Or Yeah, that's, that's another insightful question in the sense that they do respond differently if they have genetic predispositions for certain uh, abnormalities and so on. And so if you want to make disease models that are specific to a certain type, let's take diabetes, for example. Um, you would want to have 
examples of patients that have um, diabetes. And so you could design assays around trying to understand the development of diabetes in a dish as a model. Uh, the types of things that we do, um, as long as the cells do not have um, genetic um, problems associated with cardiac biology, um, either arrhythmias or so on, pretty much all the cells respond in much the same way to the drugs. So we don't necessarily have to go out and get a large bank of cells. There are groups that are doing that to try to get examples of cells that represent various genetic um, uh, mutations that affect different biologies. Uh, so there are groups that are doing that. Where it becomes an interesting question is when you get to cell therapy, though. Because, again, these are not the patient's own cells. And so if you want to implant, again, cells that are derived from those stem cells, they're going to be different than the original patient. And so you have to deal with transplantation issues. And so there's a variety of work that's going on to try to deal with transplantation issues similar to can you identify a, quote, something akin to a universal donor for those cells? Can you uh, develop ways to uh, modify the cells such that they will not generate an immune response? And so that is the one of the challenges of cell therapies from an allogeneic point of view is how do you deal with the transplantation issues? And again, that's an issue that all the groups that want to develop cell therapies from allogeneic cells are going to have to wrestle with, and there's a variety of different approaches that are being tested in the field nowadays to try to deal with that. Well, very good. Yeah, it's really insightful what uh, what you guys are doing. It's a, you know, there's a great unmined need there. Um, what do you project will happen in 2017? Any new things you're coming out with, and then same thing, you know, three to five years from now, what do you uh, guess uh, that it will be coming out in this area, in this field from you guys? Well, I mean, as I've already said, we've announced the licensing of our cardiac, or parts of our cardiac tech technologies to Blue Rock Therapeutics for cardiac cell therapy. Um, uh, we'll expect to see some developments of that over the, the next few years. Um, there will be a report uh, in some time in the next, I don't want to put a date on it because, you know, a consortiums can take longer than anticipated, but there will be reports from the, the CIPIC consortium about the validation studies of using uh, cardiomyocytes derived from stem cells to better predict cardiac toxicities. Uh, I think that all the groups participating in that, including the FDA and the pharma companies, are quite interested in that. It, it, that's actually an international consortium from uh, representatives from all over the world. Um, I think you will see more announcements of clinical studies, not necessarily from us, but from other groups doing uh, cell therapy applications. One of the big drivers there, I don't know if you're, if you're listeners are aware of this, but one of the big drivers in the cell therapy arena is the recent change in the regulatory framework in Japan 
regarding cell mm-hmm. therapy applications. They have a big major commitment to stem cell-based cell therapy applications. Um, and so they've revamped their regulatory networks and, and regs around cell therapies such that you can actually get into commercial programs only after showing that your cells are safe. So this is a complete change from the way that the rest of the world develops these. And they're small programs that allow you to uh, get into commercial development soon after you show that your cells are actually safe. And so that dramatically cuts down the regulatory uh, overhead one has to deal with. And that's driving a lot of the development. So you'll see uh, several additional uh, clinical trials for cell therapy. This is essentially the government of Japan has decided to fast track um, cell therapies. Exactly. Commercialization. Exactly. Yeah. How, how much exactly. faster and how much easier is it in the, under Japan's rules than, than commonplace? <laughs> I don't want to put years associated with it, but it's it's multiple, multiple years because in the U.S., you not only have to go through the safety studies, but then you have to go through um, uh, phase one and two, phase two and three before you can get into approved commercial development. Where in Japan, you can get, as as far as I understand the regulatory environment now, you can get into a small commercial uh, development, essentially after a phase one study, as long as your your cells are safe. So that that really has stimulated a lot of commercial uh, development. And in the U.S., I mean, there's multiple groups that are also approaching cell therapy from pluripotent cells. The Blue Rock Group also, on another side of their organization, is uh, CNS, and so they're using uh, nerve cells derived from pluripotent cells to put into patients for CNS diseases, and I think you'll see some of those trials starting in a year or two. Amazing. There's so much going on, so much to talk about. Yeah. yeah anything else that uh anything else that we should have covered that we didn't? I know it you know, we could talk for years about this, but uh any one or two last points that you want to make? Well, I mean this from my perspective, I'll be a little bit personal here. It's been tremendously gratifying to me to over the last thirty years of my career to to see this field start from essentially an unknown to being at the verge of delivering real therapies to treat significant patient uh, patient diseases and to be a part of that type of industry and to participate in the way that Vistagen's been able to do for many years has been a tremendously rewarding experience. And um, I'm looking forward to the next, uh, the next five, ten years for some major advances where you actually see real therapies affecting patients' lives. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks so much for being on the program, and uh, I know listeners will get a lot out of this. All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, 
virtual reality, and more.